Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for September 2007. I'm Eric Martins, Senior Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by my colleague, Sarah Tagan. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, everyone. In this issue, we feature articles from the labs of Christine Chow, Rex Pratt, and Richard Roberts. We'll be speaking with Rex Pratt and Rich Roberts later in the podcast, but first we want to highlight some interesting content you'll find on our website. We're currently highlighting careers in pharma and biotech on Ask the Expert. Uli Stills, Director of Chemical Sciences for Sanofi Aventis, Mary Catherine Johansson, a senior scientist at Biosearch Technologies, and Hans Johansson, also a senior scientist at Biosearch Technologies, will be fielding your questions about what it's like to work in pharma and biotech. Submit your careers questions today at www.acschemicalbiology.org. Next month, Jack Taunton from the University of California at San Francisco will join us to answer your questions about small molecules and actin. Stay tuned for more information. We continue to define chembioglossary terms on the air. This month's keyword is peptidyl transferase center, which is a keyword in a review by Chow and colleagues. It is the catalytic center of the ribosome, and it is located on the large ribosomal subunit and catalyzes peptide bond formation and peptide release. The September issue of ACS Chemical Biology features three exciting research papers and reviews. To learn more about the junior authors of these papers, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet five young scientists, Helen Josephine, Ish Kumar, Tech Lamashan, Santosh K. Mato, and Stephen Millward. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. Protein-protein interactions are crucial for many cellular processes, making them attractive candidates for drug design. Disrupting these interactions can also provide new insights into protein function. To identify new high-affinity ligands, Millward and colleagues have combined mRNA display technology, cyclic peptides, and an expanded genetic code to create a trillion-member cyclic peptide library. They describe this method and their specific efforts to target the signaling molecule G-alpha-I1 in the current issue. I'm joined today by Rich Roberts. Welcome, Rich. Hello. Could you tell our listeners about the screen you designed? Yeah, sure. So we had, we had previously been using messenger RNA display to do peptide and protein selections. So messenger RNA display is a technique that I developed some years ago during my postdoctoral work with Jack Shostak. And we'd use that approach to make linear peptides and proteins that targeted proteins and nucleic acids. In messenger RNA display, the nice thing about that technique is that you can make messenger RNA molecules that are covalently attached to the peptides that they encode in a direct covalent way, and so you can actually do selection experiments directly on those joint molecules. So our previous work had shown that we were able to make ligands that bound in sort of the 15 animal range, targeting linear peptides to proteins. The ACS ChemBio paper in this month's issue is really uh, sort of the accumulation of five years of focused effort on our part to try to make molecules that were even better. In 2002, we became interested in trying to expand the scope and structure of peptides that you could use in in vitro selection experiments. And in that year, we tried, we published the first selection that anybody had done using an expanded genetic code. And this was just a simple demonstration, but the overriding reason for doing this for us was really to try to expand the kinds of affinity, functionality, and stability that molecules would have that came out of these directed evolution libraries with the hope of trying to do some biological applications or potentially develop therapeutics. 
And so looking at the existing literature, we were convinced, we, we convinced ourselves, I think, that it was possible to design peptides that, that could have drug-like properties uh, and maybe still even have very, very high affinity, and with the hope that we could try to stabilize these molecules and get them across membranes. And, and really that, that goal, I think, is, still remains one of the holy grails of therapy development. We're basically trying to improve and find ways to target protein-protein interactions that are currently thought of as being essentially undruggable. So when you look at molecules that, that actually are drugs and are peptides, molecules like cyclosporin, you can realize that there are two ways that really you want to go. First, making peptides cyclic rather than linear seems to have the benefit of improving affinity and reducing conformational entropy when you, when you bind. So uh, that has the ability to actually make a smaller entropic loss when you're binding the target. And, and back in 2005, we published uh, an article in JAKS that actually showed that we were able to make covalently constrained libraries that were in mesoDNA display format. And we did this by making just very simple chemistry, linking the N-terminus of the peptide to a fixed internal lysine. And the nice thing about that work, using that very simple chemistry, was to show that even in, even in 10 residue peptide libraries, things with 10 consecutive random residues, you could actually do fairly efficient cyclization reactions. About 30% or more of the molecules would actually cyclize. We were also interested in trying to make things that were more protease resistant. And previously, we had shown that if you use residues like N-methylphenylalanine, that those kinds of peptides made from N-methylphenylalanine were very, very protease resistant, and that you could also use the ribosome to make those. So with that goal and with a sort of larger goal in mind, we, we basically in this study try to combine those two features together. So our goal was really to make cyclic high-affinity peptides that had an expanded genetic code and bound a protein-protein interaction surface. And the result of that work, the result of the work that we did, was to isolate cyclic high-affinity peptides that bound the desired protein. And unfortunately, I guess for, the interest, for one of our interests, they didn't seem to contain any N-methyl fee. Uh, and that, I guess, illustrates one of the features of selection. You tend to get what you select. In this case, we chose molecules, or I guess the library chose not to use the extra amino acid that we so kindly provided it. But we know from a related peptide protein crystal structure probably why this was. It doesn't seem like there's a very good place in the mo molecule for N-methyl to fit. Also, we didn't try to push that selection very hard. But the result in terms of protease resistance but the result of our selection right now was to make molecules that had both cyclic um, structure and really high affinity for the target. And so these peptides, are they stable, and can they cross membranes, and would they be effective drugs? So these peptides are quite a bit more stable than their corresponding linear peptides. So we know, we know that the peptides we made in this study are at least threefold more stable than the corresponding linear molecules. We don't yet know if they could be used as drugs, but the design strategy we took to try to make cyclic molecules was really aimed toward that long-term goal. It's thought from a variety of experiments that macrocyclization is one really good way to enhance cell membrane permeability. Um, in particular, people like Scott Loki's group at UC Santa Cruz has demonstrated recently that cyclizing natural peptides can improve their membrane permeability by about 100-fold relative to the parent linear molecules and actually gets permeability into the range of cyclosporin, which is a drug which can cross cell membranes and affect protein-protein interactions. Similarly, in the, in the drug field, 
Weber and colleagues have shown that basically limiting the number of rotatable bonds by making cyclized molecules seems to be a very good way to improve oral bioavailability. So we think that this strategy generally is going to be useful for targeting drugs. We don't know in this particular case that the molecules could be used as drugs. We're interested in testing their ability to cross membranes and to try to compare that to linear versions of them. So why did you choose GAFA I1 as a target for your screen? Well, GAFA I1 and the family of protein, the GAFA family, are the internal cellular proteins that convey the signal from G-protein-coupled receptors on the cell surface to the cellular components like transcription machinery and ion channels. Right now, GPCRs are the target of a large fraction of the market of pharmaceuticals, about 25%. And so the GPCR pathway was very interesting to us. We know in the genome there's about 1,000 GPCRs in humans, and about 400 of those are thought to be potential drug targets. At the time that we started our work, I think most people viewed the internal components, the G-alpha proteins like G-alpha I1, as simple conduits between the receptor and some physiologic outcome. However, if you look at the G-alpha family and the other related G-proteins, G-beta and G-gamma, there's about 20 different G-alpha proteins in four different classes. In the beta family, there's about seven different proteins, and in the gamma family, about 12 different proteins. And these all function together, this heterotrimer functions together when the signaling is initiated at the cell surface. And so combinatorially, there's 20 times 7 times 12, about 1,600 or more different complexes that you can make out of these. And so we thought even just the internal components by themselves might have a great deal of complexity that could be essentially exploited uh, in a way that people hadn't thought of before. We also like GAFA I1 as a model system because we're interested in studying molecules that interfere with or modulate protein-protein interactions. And we knew at the outset that GAFA actually had a lot of different interaction partners. To start with, it interacts with the nucleotide. It always binds GDP or GTP. It also binds obligatorily, uh, at least in the resting state, to the cell surface uh, G-protein-coupled receptors. We know also that it binds the beta-gamma heterodimer. Ultimately, when signaling is initiated, it goes off and binds effector proteins like adenylcyclase. In the case of GI-based proteins, it actually inhibits the synthesis of, of cyclic AMP. We also know that G-alpha-I interacts with RGS proteins that stimulate GTPase activity. Those are the proteins that actually shut off the signaling. And we also know that it interacts with uh, GPR and GoLoco motif containing proteins like the human LGN1 protein and the AGS3 protein. And so there are a lot of different interaction partners. We thought it was reasonable to think that if we got new ligands, peptides that target G-alpha-I1, they should have the ability to modulate one or more of those activities. So how strong was the affinity that you found between the peptides and the protein? Would it be effective in competing away those binding partners? Yes. The affinity of the molecules that we found was really quite outstanding and maybe even a bit surprising to us at how good they were, especially when you consider how small they are. So we find that our cyclic peptides have a binding constant around 2 nanomolar for the molecules we tested, and the molecular weight of these is about 1,500. So when you compare this with other molecules that bind protein-protein interaction sites, like monoclonal antibodies, our small molecules actually have similar affinities to monoclonal antibodies that have about 100 times more molecular weight. 
Is this system generalizable? And if so, what sort of other proteins would you want to target? Yes, we think that's one of the things that we think is, is pretty cool about this particular library, uh, and generally the idea of trying to make things that are constrained in this combinatorial evolutionary format. The library and selection strategy that we use could basically be applied to any protein target that you're interested in, or any nucleic acid target for that matter. We're interested right now in working with the library to target other interesting proteins. We're, we're interested in a number of other proteins involved in uh, signal transduction, other G proteins besides G-alpha I1. And also we're particularly interested in, in developing molecules to target proteins relevant to cancer biology. Good luck with that, and thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks very much for having me on. The penicillin family of beta-lactam antibiotics is the most widely used class of antibiotics. In spite of its long history and importance, little is known about the substrate specificity of their targets, the penicillin binding proteins, or PBPs. Kumar and colleagues explored PBP reactivity in vivo and found some surprising results. We're joined today by Rex Pratt, senior author on the paper. Welcome, Rex. Hi, Sarah. First of all, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what PBPs do in bacteria? PBPs, or penicillin-binding proteins, are the enzymes that catalyze the last step in the biosynthesis of the peptidoglycan cell walls of bacteria. Proteins are embedded in the outer leaflet of the cell membrane outside the cell, facing out towards the cell wall. Other members of the group sort of fine-tune the cell wall structure after the initial synthesis. Uh, they are all dialanyl, dialanine peptidases, catalyzing peptide hydrolysis and aminolysis. So then, how do the beta-lactam antibiotics work? Right, the antibiotic activity of beta-lactams derives from the inhibition of the PBPs, or DD peptidases, by these molecules. Closely resemble the diala-diala peptide structurally and bind to the active site. They then essentially irreversibly isolate the active site, inactivating the enzyme. With these enzymes inactivated, the bacterium can't make new cell wall, and thus can't divide and continue uh, the infection. So I know in, in your ACS chemical biology paper, you used some beta-lactams to study the specificity of the PBPs. How did you do that? Well, the PBPs have been studied as proteins for a long time, and uh, particularly their inhibition by beta-lactams. Uh, recently, a number of crystal structures have been obtained of all classes of these enzymes. But uh, they are much less well studied as uh, enzymes per se, in the sense of actually catalyzing the reactions of what one imagines to be their natural substrates, the, uh, presumably the peptidoglycan or cell wall. Uh, in vitro, for example, the uh, higher molecular weight PBPs do not seem to catalyze reactions of uh, uh, generic diala-diala peptides. We're interested in finding out whether they might catalyze reaction of peptide designed to uh, more closely mimic sections of peptidoglycan. In earlier work, we showed actually that they don't appear to. More recently, we prepared beta-lactams with side chains mimicking uh, peptidoglycan structure, thinking that the uh, beta-lactam might take the molecule to the active site, where its reactivity might then be enhanced by the specific side chains. In vitro, this didn't work either. And in our most recent work uh, reported in this paper, 
we tried to find out whether our specific beta-lactams might be reactive in vivo. Perhaps the environment of the PBPs in vivo, the presence of the membrane, other proteins and whatnot, uh, might influence their reactivity. But again, the result was negative. Our specific beta-lactams don't appear to react at enhanced rates with PVPs in vivo any more than they do in vitro, and that was a surprise. Why were these results surprising? Well, it really was a surprise. We really thought that they would react in vivo. That they don't means that, unlike um, most enzymes, these PVPs don't seem to recognize elements of substrate structure closely adjacent to the reaction center. It may mean that these enzymes only specifically recognize larger elements of peptidoglycan structure than we have yet prepared. And this may be a clever, and bacteria is certainly clever, a clever uh, defense mechanism against small molecule uh, antibiotics. There's certainly implications in these results for antibiotic design. They probably mean that uh, only very large or very small molecules are likely to be good inhibitors transition state-like inhibitors directly at the uh, uh, reaction center. In the future, um, I guess we're going to look a little more carefully at further perturbations of uh, the peptidoglycan structure with these molecules to see if we've missed anything along these lines, but also probably focus on uh, the small molecule inhibitors, and we have a couple of classes of those uh, that show some promise. Well, those results are very interesting. Thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks to all of you for listening. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org.